Welcome back to Reply Guys, the leftist feminist comedy podcast for the rest of us. I'm Kate Willett. I'm Julia Clare. Dude, last week I had such a weird fucking situation with a reply guy. Yeah. Um, there's this one reply guy that always uh, retweets like everything I tweet. And he is just he's, he's the most up in my mentions out of any reply guy that I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Um, and then last week... When we had Natalie Sharon, he was uh, tweeting about the podcast, but he was like, please note, I do not listen to this podcast because I do not want to find Kate Willett any more infuriating (laughs) than I already do. But he's like, everyone else, please listen to the podcast. And I'm like, what the fuck is going on with this guy? Like, like he it turns out that he hates me, but but supports the podcast, but supports my work (laughs) and retweets me constantly. I mean, like I looked at his Twitter and it's like it's just a, it's just a flurry of your tweets it's just my <laughs> tweets and i'm like this is very strange that you hate me and have devoted yourself to me in this way um he's got a weird little hate boner for me i guess that's incredible yeah that he hates you so much that he has devoted his life to you <laughs> yeah <laughs> i mean that's really what i want out of a relationship uh someone that i can subtweet forever Oh, what God. is it? What is a romantic relationship if not a constant subtweet? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. So okay, this week uh, did we did you watch the Democratic debates? I did. I didn't watch the whole thing the whole time because I. They are both the. That's just a. There's too many of them. Uh, there's too many people who I don't want to learn anything about. <laughs> Um, they're not sending their best people <laughs> i refuse to learn anything about john hickenlooper i'm just gonna say that unequivocally um i won't do it um yeah i don't know it, there's just like yeah it, i just i also feel like uh Marilyn's john delaney got a lot of airtime got a lot of talking time and i can't endorse that at all john delaney is an absolute thumb of a man and he just wants us to do centrism again and i do think that it's important to say that the democratic party has 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 come a ways because it's not inconceivable that 20 years ago john delaney would have been our nominee yeah i mean biden may well be the nominee this time i know you're right i mean i don't you're wanna, right. No, you're right look i kind of believe uh in 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 which it just like a little bit to the extent that i do not want to say that biden will be the nominee because i don't want to do anything to make it true uh yeah. but it's on the table we and he we must wanna, be defeated we must be defeated and we will put that out into the universe yes we will tweet it boy will we not stop tweeting it. yeah uh, biden <laughs> fucking sucks i mean i was thinking his forehead skin is taut yeah he seemed so old it's so weird to me that all of these people may potentially vote for biden because they think that he has the best chance of winning and it's yeah. like uh do you not remember john Kerry? do you not remember yeah. al gore it's not like having a boring ass white centrist dude is like a sure bet or anything yeah, John Kerry is actually a great comparison because we had already had four years of Bush at that point, and there was just like a huge, allegedly a huge come to Jesus moment after John Kerry lost because they really thought it was like in the bag for him because Bush was so unpopular. And uh, boy, did we get four more years of W. Um, yeah. Yeah, but the, I mean, I really, I did like the first night of debates because uh, Bernie and Warren were in the same debate and got to just go fucking ham on John Delaney. <laughs> it was so great to see them team up. And I uh, I did look at some pictures of them after. There was this like really sweet picture of them hugging each other. And it, honestly, you know, like I don't normally fully stand politicians, but I, I got to say that one made me um, tear up a little bit. Yeah. And it was so sweet. It also made me feel really bad about the time I let a friendship sour because uh, we were both in the Rooster Tea Feathers amateur comedy competition. <laughs> I'm like, well, you know. <laughs> wow. Yeah. 
I've actually been taking a break from Twitter these last few days for the first time in years. Congratulations. Thank you. I, I had a friend of the pod, Josh Gondelman, change my, my Twitter password because I've tried so many times to like log out and I've I deleted the app months ago. It just doesn't work. I don't know. I'm very sick. Um, so anyways, uh, really had to feel my feelings the last few days and I do not recommend <laughs> But, you know, it's good. It's probably for the best. It's healthy uh, to not constantly be online. Anyways, back to the debates. I feel like Warren kept getting cut off. Uh, having one minute to answer anything is wholly insufficient. Someone made this point. I don't know. I think a lot of these guys are pretty used to the one minute mark in their lives. Yeah. Um, no, I thought Warren... It's like, uh, that seems like a reasonable amount of time to do something. I'm I'm ready. Yeah, I'm a real minute man. Um, yeah, I, no, I thought Warren did an amazing job. Uh, this was definitely the strongest um, that I think that she's spoken out for Medicare for All Absolutely. so far. Yeah. I mean, she did raise her hand in the last debate, as you noted, um on the last episode of the podcast but it, it does seem like she's doubled down her commitment um to medicare for all versus like a, a health plan of her own creation yeah, yeah that's what it seems like at this point absolutely i think she's um she has evolved on the issue as a lot of americans have probably um but yeah no i think that I think that Bernie has always been a very effective communicator for Medicare for all. And he's been very consistent on it. And I'm happy to see that Warren is kind of becoming more staunch about it. And yeah. And it was fun to see them team up and own the rest of those motherfuckers. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Warren had that amazing moment with John Delaney, who John Delaney was talking about how um, all of this is unrealistic and we can't, you know, we can't do Medicare for all. We can't do free college. We can't do the Green New Deal. And Warren basically came back with, we'll play the clip. You know, I don't understand why anybody goes to all the trouble of running for president of the United States just to talk about what we really can't do and shouldn't fight for. Yeah, which is a spectacular own. Um, And also an incredible own. Love to see love to see it <laughs> oh man so uh, other moments that we love to see uh we love to see bernie say uh i wrote the damn bill that yep. was fucking fantastic yeah he was so funny in this debate he's like, funny that's i mean yeah that's a thing so it's like the difference between bernie's old and biden's old it's like bernie is old in his personality but biden is old in his ideology yeah and i'd rather have the old guy who's just like kind of a a wily curmudgeon but has really good politics than the guy who hugs too long <laughs> yeah yeah no, I, don't, I mean i feel like bernie was probably a young curmudgeon as well oh yeah i mean if we are i don't know if you you guys have listened to our outro song uh but it it is really stay till the end of the episode this week it is bernie's folk album um where he does um this land is your land. This land is your land. Yeah. And yeah, it does sound like he's been a curmudgeon since birth, which is something that I really identify with, honestly. But his comedic timing is getting better, yeah. I think. I, I don't know. I, he had uh, like three to four excellent laugh lines in this debate, which is encouraging because I think that being funny is a big part of winning. I do, too. And I also think that that's something that a lot of people were not willing to acknowledge about Trump in his primary. Um, and in some instances in the general is that he had a lot of like, unfortunately during his very crowded clown car debate had a lot of like funny lines that humiliated like these establishment Republicans like Marco Rubio and Jeb Jeb exclamation (laughs) point. And, um, you know, (laughs) exclamation point. (laughs) And, you know, uh, Zodiac killer son, Ted Cruz. Um, Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> oh, God. Be- Beto is really struggling. Um, he really has a hard time. He loves to kind of uh, expand and pontificate and, you know, skateboard around the place. And he has a really hard time sticking to one minute. Um, so that's been fun to see, too. Yeah, um, I really I hated Pete in the we, debate. I mean, I always hate Pete. We hate Pete. We Okay, I will. 
I will say this one thing for Pete. Only this is the only time I will ever say anything nice about Pete. Probably, and we'll probably fucking cut it for the podcast, Julia, because I'm not putting out this centrist propaganda. Yeah. Pete said one salient point, and I will repeat it. Okay, all right. He go. said, "I get it. I hate Pete." I want to make that clear. But he said that he was like, okay, if we pursue leftist policies, they're going to call us socialists. But you know what? Did he say leftist? No. Okay. He said, he said, if we pursue more progressive policies, they're going to call us socialists. But he said, if we pursue centrist policies, they're going to call us socialists. And that is unfortunately a good point. (laughs) That he heard on Pod Save America. Probably. (laughs) Yes. Pod Save America, if you're listening, thank you for giving Pete a good talking point once. (laughs) Uh, second night, um, yeah, just a, a couple quick highlights. Uh, Andrew Andrew Yang said that uh, hashtag we, Yang Gang. Yeah, we had a friend win the Yang Gang. No, we didn't. Uh, yeah, I will tell you who it is when we're off the pod. I I know one person who's in the Yang Gang, and I I cannot abide. So <laughs> Yang fucking sucks. I am glad that he made it clear that uh, automation is taking people's jobs and that it's not immigrants as uh is yeah. as is a a fear and hatred stoked on fox news so much you know uh he uh yang brings to attention uh the real evil of robots um mm-hmm. which i feel like people have forgotten about you know in the past uh few years of sci-fi you know just how bad <laughs> robots are and what they will do to us um but i loved the moment that he said that uh, the solution to climate change was to move people to higher ground because it was <laughs> it is maybe something true about it but it was also like whoa <laughs> like fucking so dystopian all right tulsi yeah tulsi um tulsi took a took a swing up at at kamala harris and um basically said that it was hypocritical for her to uh have her big moment of questioning joe biden's uh record on race when she has kind of pursued so many policies um both as a prosecutor and as attorney general of california and uh, da in san francisco that have directly led to the disproportionate incarceration uh of black americans um so um unfortunately yeah tulsi made a good point sometimes uh you know a uh, a broken clock is right twice a day (laughs) yeah i mean she's really nutty um but you know that was a fun moment yeah it was definitely a fun moment someone who who dragged her about assad was it kamala yeah Yeah. after yeah Yeah. um but you know john delaney uh is really who i i'm so offended by and andrew yang because andrew like i would rather have elizabeth holmes running than andrew yang <laughs> yeah i mean and you know we, we got to talk about marianne for a second um i mean she did have a good moment in the first debate um on the question of reparations but mm-hmm. you know we do not stand marianne uh we you know we, we have do stand calling politicians girlfriend yeah <laughs> yeah uh it is you know it, to me it seems extremely unlikely that marianne will gain any real traction uh so we have kind of stand her as a joke but you know obviously she would be no, i think not a good president so yeah please don't I, vote for marianne yeah we <laughs> I did get a few questions about it from people who listened to last episode. Like, do you guys actually like her? No, we don't. We just think she's funny. Uh, we do think she's funny. She is funny. We we can just let her be funny. Yeah. I mean... And we don't actually stand. But anyways, I want to get to the 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 real reply guy of the week. Um, <laughs> one of my, my personal... Um, mm, faves you don't uh, want to say faves about this guy faves. um just w- one of a, just a real what is it stick in my craw what is that phrase um he sucks too long didn't read he sucks um it's brett stevens everybody it is the new york times op-ed columnist who is part of the unholy trinity of bad white men who write conservative op-eds for the new york times i hate read everything these guys write i don't love the times uh for obvious reasons but 
um, they're just, they're so easy to poke holes in and they think that they're so smart. Um, but this, this op-ed is called Democrats are not up to their historic responsibility. And, uh, so basically he talks about how despicable the Republican party is and how he's so sick about what has come of the Republican party. And he wants the Democrats to be, to be up to the challenge of, of facing and beating the, this this morally bankrupt this in his opinion newly morally bankrupt Republican Party but we all know that it has always been this way um, at least since yeah no we can say it's always been this way yeah um, <laughs> he basically says uh, I liked some of what I heard from the Democratic debates I liked hearing a candidate call attention to the fact that if we simply withdraw our forces from Afghanistan we will invite a humanitarian catastrophe that will startle and frighten every man woman and child in this country i liked hearing another candidate acknowledge that the only realistic way to get to net zero carbon emissions by 2050 is to innovate our way out of this problem innovation oh, wow is he in the yang gang yeah. is that where this um, is going who could who could possibly have said these things yeah. and he said the only problem the three candidates i just mentioned colorado's john hickenlooper maryland's john delaney and ohio's tim ryan are polling at two percent collectively <laughs> which again is just thank you people who are out there answering the polls because thank you for not endorsing these the- these fucking stooges and their bad ideas yeah and then he talks about he says that you know what a lot of conservative or neoliberal um columnists say which is that the party's going to really be in trouble if we nominate someone too far to the left um and he says you know we don't know like based on trump winning we don't know anything about politics anymore anything could happen he says it's hardly out of the question that bernie sanders elizabeth warren or kamala harris could beat trump the problem is that too many of them advocate terrible policies ruinous schemes discredited notions and crackpot ideas Uh, I'm voting. <laughs> I'm voting for Bernie Sanders because of his ruinous schemes. It just sounds like some weird, like Shakespearean yeah. insult of someone's honor. I just yeah. can't deal with this fucking clown. No, he's a real like a uh, villain and King Lear. He energy. really is. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Basically. Uh, yeah, you know, he goes on all the the classic talking points of conservatives and neoliberals. Medicare for all is unrealistic. Uh, he really hates free college. He said, I do not admire anyone embracing the bad idea of free college. The surest way to strip nearly anything of its value is to make it free. Oh, boy. Slut shaming. <laughs> that is slut shaming. Brett, uh, have, can we introduce you to the concept of love? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Probably not, honestly. No, probably not. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I don't think Brett Stevens' mom loved him enough, and I think that's why the, he is the way he is. But I don't want to blame a woman for Brett Stevens being horrible, because uh, it seems like it is mostly of his own making. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Brett Stevens is like, one. it's such a rich guy talking point to be like i'm sorry if college is free if something doesn't cost money anymore how will people know that i'm better than them totally that's exactly what it is and he i mean you know one bad op-ed was simply not enough for brett stevens this weekend because he did write another one a few days later i can't help myself i'm addicted to writing bad op-eds he is addicted to his own bad takes and you know um, who among us really (laughs) who among us can say that they are not uh yeah i mean uh, here's another one uh, from August 2nd. Diversity, inclusion, and anti-excellence. Uh, yeah, it is absolutely as bad as it sounds. It's just basically like um, having any sort of um, consideration of race or socioeconomic status in college admissions will create anti-excellence among um, American elite universities. And this goes back to what I was saying. It's like Brett Stevens is prep school educated. He went to... Um, a boarding school in Massachusetts and then went to the University of Chicago, which is an elite school. And then he went to, he got his master's at the London School of Economics and he is... Still not excellent. (laughs) Yeah. But it's like his conception of what 
excellence is in higher education or education period is, I think, entirely tied to the proportion of wealthy white people at that school. Um, so yeah, that's why he thinks that if it's free, it'll be ruined. And if there's people of color or poor, poorer people at these schools, it will also be ruined. <laughs> Great guy. love him so much. Fuck Brett Stevens. Fuck Brett Stevens and David Brooks. And I don't want to say the New York times cause they, but honestly, mostly. Yeah. Yo proletariat. <laughs> And an honorable mention for fuck Marine Dowd. All right, we got to get into the show. Um, We're so excited for this segment. It's we already recorded it. It's so good. Um, you guys are really gonna love it. We we had so much fun uh, talking to him. We're gonna talk to Gabe Gonzalez about um, Governor Rosario's resignation and um, basically what's been going on in Puerto Rico. Thank you. Bye. Hey everybody, welcome back. Today we are joined by Gabe Gonzalez. Gabe is a comedian. He's a writer. He is the host of a game show on Scruff on weekdays called hosting and he's also um, a co-host of the MTV news show need to know um, we're so excited to have you thank you so much for being here thank you all for having me it's good to be here yay <laughs> Gabe is here today to talk to us um, about the situation that has unfolded in uh, in Puerto Rico uh, and Gabe why don't you give us the latest <laughs> Ooh, oh my gosh where do we begin um so some context on my relation to this, I am Puerto Rican, but born in the United States. Um, so I identify with what we would call the Puerto Rican diaspora, um, sort of a community that has been displaced and relocated elsewhere outside of, of Puerto Rico, right? So I think there's a big history of Puerto Rican communities being driven out of the island for economic reasons, for a number of reasons. Um, so there is sort of this um, distance, right? Like I'm not living in Puerto Rico and I have many family members who do. My mom was living there for like the past eight years. Um, and so I think my understanding of this feels like it hits close to home, but I'm also not like living it day to day. Right. right. Um, but I, you know, having connected with family members, with friends who are on the ground protesting, um, I think there's just been this giant, uh, kind of coming together and show of solidarity among Puerto Ricans everywhere in the world, which has mm-hmm. been really, really exciting to see. Um, and so I guess the latest that's happened is Ricardo Rosselló, who was serving as the governor of Puerto Rico, resigned last Friday. It is the date he set to resign after he was pushed out of office um, for what were almost two weeks of protests. Yeah. Right? So what pushed him out of office, right? Um, what a lot of people are calling Ricky Leaks because his name is Ricky or Telegram Dude. I like Ricky Leaks better. Ricky Leaks is pretty good. Uh, Ricky Leaks is like, Puerto Ricans will give you a good pun. Just give him a little while. You know Ricky what I'm saying? Leaks. Like Ricky Leaks. It's the worst. Um, and basically it was just 889 pages of a chat between the governor, Ricky Rosselló, and some of his closest advisors, mostly people who are like working in his administration. 889 pages? Mm-hmm. The part of this I really to is being on Facebook Messenger too much. <laughs> I know, yeah. right? And that was the gag. Like Puerto Ricans were like, wow, this crisis really made Puerto Ricans read 889 pages over two days so they could get out and protest, right? Um, and what's really cool is that these pages were basically published by the Center for Independent Journalism of Puerto Rico. Oh, wow. Uh, Centro de Periodismo Investigativo Independiente in Spanish. Um, and basically what's amazing about them is that they are an independently funded, independently run Center for Investigative Journalism. Um, and so I think we're seeing not just the utility, but the necessity of independent journalism that is not dependent on investors, is not dependent on government funds. Um, so they were able to publish this stuff um, and really like get it out to the people of Puerto Rico. And in these chats, you know what I think what a lot of news organizations were reporting early on was the homophobic and misogynistic stuff, right? calling women politicians who spoke out against him whores, um, people on the chats, uh, including Rosselló, making homophobic comments, including those aimed at Ricky Martin, which is a no-no in Puerto Rico. <laughs> we don't do that. Um, but on top of that, there were other really infuriating things. Um, for example, the governor admitting that he used his position as governor to take taxpayer-funded trips whenever mm-hmm. he wanted to avoid controversy on the island. Um, the governor and his closest advisors being glib about resources not getting to Puerto Ricans after Hurricane Maria. Someone on the chat joking about how um, Puerto Rico should have enough dead bodies to feed the vulture after the hurricane. Just like really insensitive stuff that I think is emblematic of 
the corruption um, that exists in Puerto Rico's local government, but also why that corruption exists, right? Which is that the political elite on the island, um, those who are wealthier, um, those who have the funds and resources to study abroad and then come back and claim that they are intelligent enough to run the government, um, also view the people they're supposed to be serving as less worthy, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's emblematic of corruption that's become typical in Puerto Rico's government, but I think it's also emblematic of this sort of class difference that exists and to me sort of encapsulates um, the idea of of like you know respectability politics and like who's allowed to make decisions right. um, and so you know we can dive more into that and sort of the statehood <laughs> debate and how this is all like folded into one big clusterfuck of things <laughs> uh, but I think Puerto Ricans were fed up and yeah. um, you know we've been talking about this um, Julia I know we were on Jorge's podcast a little while ago talking yeah. about this but these protests happening now in 2019 I think have been building for a while and um, have definitely been been building since the hurricane, uh, right? Or even since before the hurricane, since the uh, Promesa bill was signed. Yeah. And the Promesa bill was passed in 2016 um, under Barack Obama, who signed it. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what the Promesa bill was? Yeah, definitely. So um, Puerto Rico was in a heavy amount of debt, right? Um, Mm -hmm. Like billions and billions. At the time, there was an estimated 70 to $73 billion in debt that the federal government expected Puerto Rico to pay back. Um, And because Puerto Rico is a modern-day colony, um, what the United States calls a commonwealth, um, Puerto Rico was excluded from being able to declare bankruptcy in the 80s, right? Um, so Puerto Rico didn't have like a, a legal way to um, deal with this debt on their own. And so basically what the federal government did is appoint a board uh, called the Fiscal Board of Federal Oversight, what Puerto Ricans call La Junta, which is like just a, a short short for the board, right? Yeah. Like there's they're the board. Um, and uh, they were appointed by the president. Not all of them have to live in Puerto Rico or be Puerto Rican, which is a major issue yeah, for wow. a lot of Puerto Ricans. And they brought on consulting firms like McKinsey and Company. So while they're closing schools and trying to cut, you know, somewhere from 150 to 200 million dollars of expenditures from the Puerto Rican government, they're also paying millions and millions of dollars to these uh, private consulting firms and kind of prioritizing vulture funds getting no, paid back. No, okay. McKinsey, that really rings yeah. a bell. Which really one of our, our current 2020 candidates in the Democratic Party worked for McKinsey? That would be Pete Buttigieg, <laughs> and he seems awfully proud of it. He's he like very excited. He, yeah. Do you know that he can say all lives matter in seven different languages? <laughs> <laughs> it's oh really God, impressive. That's truly a skill. Friend I of the pod, it. Mayor Pete. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I do want to say one one thing that you touched on about the role of independent journalism that I think is so important. We've seen that kind of time and again, and especially with um, like local newspapers mm-hmm. all over, um, you know, uh, the the Commonwealths, the main the mainland U.S. kind of shuddering. But you know, we look at something like the Jeffrey Epstein case, mm-hmm. like that being cracked open again was almost entirely because of the Miami Herald. Yeah. Um, and I think that we, you know, a lot of the the investigative uh, departments on those those papers are seen as like quote unquote like hemorrhaging money or whatever because they only take one story at a time and they take a long time to do their research. Mm-hmm. And I think it really shows how vital independent journalistic outlets are in a time like this. Um, so I just wanted to say that. About, Absolutely. Yeah. No, especially in local communities where I think national outlets might not understand the nuance totally. or the historical or economic context of what's going on. Like to me, it was so valuable that that center for Inter- investigative journalism in Puerto Rico managed to set the tone for the conversation. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were seeing a lot of national outlets sort of taking their cues from local reporters. Um, Cause I think Puerto Ricans are used to, seeing national outlets just gloss over a law and be like, Puerto Rico's in debt. It's bad. Moving (laughs) on. You know what I mean? It's like, okay, but how? How did we get here? Um, And I I think it's the same thing with the um, issue with government corruption, right? I think the federal government, especially now, um, the president we have in office now, um, wants to use this idea, this vague idea of corruption existing in Puerto Rico to increase federal oversight and um, increase the red tape it takes for Puerto Rico to receive um, federal funding after a disaster, right? Um, but that's what's kind of messed up, right? We're, we're not looking at where that corruption is coming from or what the root of that corruption is, which has been years and years and years of like, 
uh, offering tax breaks to companies and individuals that want to come to Puerto Rico to make money, but like not actually invest in the community, right? Um, seeing uh, things like the Jones Act, which we can get into a bit later, um, sort of become the norm in Puerto Rico for almost a century. Um, so what is the this, Jones yeah. Act? Oh my gosh, yeah. So the Jones Act was sort of, it was passed in 1917. And it basically offered Puerto Rican citizenship at the time, right? A lot of Puerto Ricans criticized it because they felt it was an excuse to get Puerto Ricans involved in World War One and, and be able to draft them without um, a lot of pushback. Wow. But it also basically established um, this really interesting provision that says um, any imports coming to the United States, even if they're going to Puerto Rico, cannot stop in Puerto Rico. They must stop at a mainland port first. So Puerto Ricans have been paying more in a lot of basic goods. Like I talked to my mom about the price of milk while she was living there. Right. And I was like, oh, the price of milk is like this many dollars here. And she's like, well, it's three more dollars in Puerto Rico. And I'm like, what? She's like, yeah, that's because boats, even boats that like pass Puerto Rico <laughs> have to stop in the United States first and then come back. Right. Yeah. So that is just like one tiny aspect of Puerto Ricans like colonial stat or Puerto Rico's colonial status that I think people overlook because it's a very minute detail, but it has a huge economic impact. Right. And it makes a difference in the lives of day to day Puerto Ricans. So it feels to me that there are kind of many ways that um, the United States government has made life extraordinarily more expensive mm -hmm. for Puerto Ricans um, yeah. through PROMESA and uh, the austerity politics that followed it. Um, it sounds like the Jones Act. Um, I don't know. To what degree is that true? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of Puerto Ricans feel it, right? Um, they, I mean, like, since I've been growing up, like, I've heard family members in Puerto Rico on the mainland who've had to leave insist that Puerto Ricans are treated as second-class citizens, right? Mm -hmm. and, and you see that. It is true. Puerto Ricans are citizens. But, like, even the federal courts of this very country have said that Puerto Rico is not, quote-unquote, a part of the United States. It belongs to the United mm. States, right? So we can try to dress it up as a commonwealth. Uh, the commonwealth status was basically established right after Puerto Rico's first democratically elected governor, Luis Munoz Marin, who basically kind of... Um, Established the Commonwealth status as a, a kind of halfway point between the, the desires of the federal government and the desires of Puerto Ricans. And to date, that is the the kind of official status of Puerto Rico, right? It is a Commonwealth. Um, they have their own democratically elected governor and their own legislative body. But um, it's but it's not a Commonwealth in the way that say Massachusetts, Virginia, right. Pennsylvania. Exactly. Are. Uh, yeah, it is. You know, subject to U.S. federal law, and you know, I think. Puerto Ricans, I think, don't pay federal income tax um, is one thing, right? But they also don't have representation in Congress. Right. Um, they cannot actually vote for president, even though they vote in the primaries. Um, they pay <laughs> into Medicare and Social Security, but there's a cap on how much they can get back, no matter how much they pay, right? They're Jeez. not allowed to declare bankruptcy. They're not eligible for a bunch of federal funds. And it's it's just like, why? Like, you go down the list, and it's so many, many things. Like, I could be here for three hours talking about how each of those things is, like, really shitty and has impacted Puerto Rico negatively over the past 50, 60 years or even longer than that. Um, but it's just a number of things that have impeded Puerto Rico's economic progress and have led to what a lot of Puerto Ricans on the island uh, are calling a brain drain, right? Where like you see people who feel that there's more economic or educational opportunity off the island. And so when you see austerity measures being implemented that are closing schools, that are pulling funding from the University of Puerto Rico, um, these processes that are supposed to help save Puerto Rico's economy are, in fact, exacerbating the conditions that are leading um, to Puerto Rico's economic collapse, right? Um, there is nobody that wants to stay there anymore, yeah. right? Um, because the opportunities just aren't there. And I think if we aren't working to um, educate the next generation and empower Puerto Ricans themselves to start businesses and start innovating on the island, um, then it's like there's no future, you know what I mean? Like... I don't want a bunch of like crypto douches or another like onslaught of pharmaceutical companies to come in, claim tax breaks, even though they don't live there and then peace out when the going gets rough. You know yeah. what I mean? Let's talk about the crypto douches. Let's Ooh. talk about the, the Yang gang. You know, I don't, is, oh God. I, I don't think that I don't think every uh, I don't think every uh, crypto billionaire is in the yang gang um, but it has a I, I yang just, gang vibe to it, it absolutely does. and i want to say god bless andrew yang for <laughs> for proving once and for all that male politicians can also be unlikable yeah uh, absolutely so there's all these crypto 
entrepreneurs or whatever I, entrepreneur that's just like me that's like douchebag yeah, um, yeah, in yeah. french right but um <laughs> so okay my understanding is that post hurricane maria um a bunch of like crypto opportunists have moved to puerto rico mm-hmm. and are uh, doing fucked up things there um yeah what what fucked up things are they doing yeah um, officially that's my official Uh, interview question which is so weird for crypto guys truly just you know uh, a north star of morality in most other cases an ethical guiding light if you will um so i think post hurricane maria um puerto rico was you know in need of assistance aid to survive but um i think a lot of people are also thinking about what is next um for puerto rico's energy infrastructure for puerto rico's economy um to rebuild right there's still homes that have blue tarps over them on the island and we're in 2019 and that storm was in 2017 right so i think uh, a lot of people saw well not a lot of people the crypto douches saw (laughs) an island that was already in an economic crisis and then faced an environmental crisis and they were like what a perfect place to exploit <laughs> to just exploit <laughs> truly um, and so there was an onslaught of these like crypto mm. dudes some of whom owned uh, you know these like blockchain companies that wanted to come into Puerto Rico and establish some of them wanted to establish their own city um, and some of them were thinking of taking over old San Juan to basically see if a city or a municipality could could uh, subsist on cryptocurrency alone right they wanted to sort of like take advantage of not just this weird economic desperation but also the fact that there you know like infrastructure and shambles and be like yo we'll come in if we can do this fucked up experiment right (laughs) so there's this quote um by this guy i read this story in 2018 in the new york times like right after the storm had happened and this guy named halsey minor who's uh apparently the founder of some new site called cnet which i imagine is some sort of tech site i looked at it they have tech reviews and weird things on there gross um he owns a blockchain company called video coin cute name (laughs) and then um came to puerto rico um, wanting to sort of start this little experiment with a bunch of other people. And he's quoted in the New York Times as saying, like, literally, like, this is just, <laughs> he literally said, what's happened here is a perfect storm. Well, it was really bad for the people of Puerto Rico in the long term. It's a godsend if people look past that, right? So you oh, literally have lawyers gosh. and politicians who are, who were becoming aware of what these guys were trying to do in 2018. And some of them were like, yeah, these guys wanted to literally start their own city, their own like cryptocurrency city on the ruins of a natural disaster absolutely yeah. right yeah. so it's like literally and most of them are white men so it's like just colonialism yeah in absolutely a, in a little kind of like cute little tech friendly framework <laughs> Naomi um, yeah. Klein calls that disaster capitalism disaster capitalism absolutely yeah. yeah and when I read her book about Puerto Rico and that was the first time I encountered um, this kind of uh <laughs> Yeah, this information about crypto douches moving in and trying to take mm-hmm. advantage of the uh, devastation caused by Hurricane Maria. Mm-hmm. But yeah, reading about all these grassroots movements that sprung up in the wake of Hurricane Maria to fight disaster capitalism mm-hmm. and um, work to build sustainable agriculture, sustainable energy. Can you tell us some about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um so I think first, uh, I do want to say that, like, I don't think this is the first time Puerto Rico has gone um, through this phase of disaster capitalism, right? Like, Puerto Rico was sort of forced into industrialization in the 1950s, and it was kind of the same thing. Like, from the Great Depression until then, I think Puerto Ricans faced a major hurricane, an earthquake, um, an economic collapse after yeah. the Depression, were fighting for um, some local autonomy. And so, you know, by the late 1940s, early 1950s, you saw sort of this forced industrialization and Puerto Rico's economy had mostly been based off of agriculture at that point. So you see a lot of Puerto Ricans being displaced. Um, There are a ton of Puerto Ricans in Hawaii also, because I think there was one major hurricane in like the early part of the 20th century that ended up displacing all these agricultural workers. Um, And the United States was like, oh, we'll help you get to, you know, a state where you can find work and legit just shipped them off to another island. They were like, this is an island we own. You know islands. Let's send you to. So there's a huge Puerto Rican population in Hawaii as well um, after like this other wave of economic and natural disasters. Um, And so it just seems like it's a cycle, right, of like shit happening to Puerto Rico um, the federal government and like private businesses being like, oh, we can totally fix this. And then the cycle just perpetuates, right? So I think after Hurricane Maria, um, people were already kind of fed up with PROMESA, the austerity measures that were being implemented or suggested by the fiscal board, which uh, the governor did sometimes push against. 
had kind of helped uh, develop solidarity among unions on the island, uh, among students who saw the price of tuition was potentially going to be raised while funds were being cut from the University of Puerto Rico. Um, and so it's like, you know, you see students, you see workers unions and teachers unions sort of like coming together and raising their voices in a way that they haven't in quite some time. And then Maria hits. Uh, and at that point, you can't deny that the federal government left Puerto Ricans behind, right? Totally. Um, there was a ton of delay in getting the resources to Puerto Rico. I think uh, Trump certainly downplayed the impact of Puerto Rico. Rosselló sat right next to Trump um, as he estimated that the death toll was in like the double digits. And um, a lot of Puerto Ricans could have told you at that time that there were thousands who uh, were dead or dying because of this hurricane. Um, and so I think to watch the federal government downplay the impact the hurricane had, um, try to deny Puerto Rico federal funds or make the Puerto Rican government jump through more hoops um, simply to send resources that were insufficient or way too late, really aggravated the Puerto Rican people, to say the least, right? But if you talk to Puerto Ricans on the island after the hurricane, they're like, this is terrible. But what it helped us realize is that we can be self-sufficient, right? Mm -hmm. If FEMA isn't getting our water bottles to us or if FEMA's sending water bottles late and the local government isn't getting them to us in these like rural mountain communities, then we're going to do this shit ourselves. And so like you would see on WhatsApp, on Facebook, like my mom would forward me um, all these emails or texts that she'd gotten from friends who were like, hey, I'm making a delivery to this community tomorrow where I've been told people... Um, don't have insulin or don't have water or don't have food. FEMA literally sent a bag of Cheetos and a couple water bottles. So if anyone has some donations to make, I'll be driving up there myself. Right. Yeah. Um, so Puerto Ricans started becoming self-reliant and you had these sort of, um, I don't know, like links that were developing via word of mouth. Uh, right. People stopped waiting for FEMA to show up. People stopped waiting for Prepa, the island's uh, utility to fix their stuff and started doing it themselves. Um, and there's a woman named Frances Negron who is Puerto Rican. Um, she teaches at Columbia, and she's written a lot also about disaster capitalism and, and Puerto Rico's colonial status in the 21st century. And the thing she always says, um, I last time I saw her, we were in Miami, and we were like sitting down to dinner with a, a bunch of people. We were all part of this documentary about the Latino vote. And she's talking, and she's like, I think the biggest issue facing Puerto Rico is the lack of imagination, right? That the, this colonial status has been imposed for so long that people in Puerto Rico on the island have not been allowed to imagine a future where they are self-sufficient, fully autonomous, independent. And as terrible as this sounds, I think this onslaught of disasters, of economic disasters, of natural disasters, has literally forced Puerto Ricans on the island and off to face the reality that they may have to be self-sufficient. Mm -hmm. We may have to be self-sufficient. And it is possible, right? And so I think these protests against the governor aren't just about this governor being a misogynist and a homophobe and absolutely corrupt and lining his own pockets at the expense of the Puerto Rican people. It is like this outcry against uh, what colonialism has done and the sort of power structures that colonialism has built in Puerto Rico. Um, and the community saying that they have had enough, right? And that it is in their power and their control to think of a different way uh, to run Puerto Rico and, and keep it afloat, so to speak. Um, so I, I am in, emboldened and excited, um, not because of the tragedies that have befallen Puerto Rico, but because I think um, people have come together in such a way that we haven't seen in, in quite some time. I don't know if my generation has seen it, right? Yeah. Because Puerto Ricans do have this history of... Um, being outspoken and pushing for independence. I mean, you go back in Puerto Rico's history and there are so many um, massacres and acts of violence uh, staged by the federal government against people pushing for independence or autonomy on the island. Yeah. Um, it goes way back to Spanish colonial rule, like in the fucking 1860s, like one of the biggest rebellions against colonial rule happened. It was called the Grito de Lares. So it's like baked into our history. We are a revolutionary people. We have almost never been independent. There was like a brief period of time between 1898 and 1899 <laughs> when we were going from like Spanish colonial rule to like American colonial rule where Puerto Ricans were like thinking of pushing for independence and then the Treaty of Paris was signed and the U.S. was like, this is ours, by the way. Um, uh, and so I don't know. It's just like, it's this thing where like you feel this uprising coming and you're realizing it's bigger than this one governor. Um, and I think what is most amazing is that there is no um, leader. There is no like central group or person organizing these protests. It was 
it was truly like this wild decentralized movement that just came together. And even if people couldn't make it to the protests in old San Juan, they were protesting in their own communities, right? I literally saw, things, yeah. I saw protests here in New York oh, absolutely. about it. And that's a great part of the diaspora, right? Yeah. Like, you have people in New York, in DC. I saw a, a protest in Sweden. Like, you know what I mean? Like, Puerto Ricans <laughs> in Sweden just being like, yo, we're here, we got you. Like, it's incredibly yeah. inspiring. It I, really it, is. I feel like, uh, <laughs> I feel like whenever we talk about this, there, there is this feeling of like, um, so, by the way, how do you get rid of a corrupt misogynist asking for a friend? <laughs> yeah. I feel like the kind of mainstream liberal media thing to say about Puerto Rico, it's like Puerto Rico should become a state. And to me, it seems like that. I don't know. It, it seems like it's more complicated and there are a lot of Puerto Ricans Absolutely. that don't want to become a state. Can yeah. you speak to that? Fully. Um, so, yeah. So I think one of the first referendums on statehood that happened in Puerto Rico was in 1914. Um, and at that point, what was Puerto Rico's Congress in that current iteration voted for independence and the United States Congress said no. And um, in the last hundred plus years, you've seen a variety of referendums with a variety of different options. And it's always sort of like kind of swinging back and forth. Um, what happened after the 1950s when Puerto Rico was sort of established as a commonwealth is you sort of saw two major uh, parties emerge. Basically what in Puerto Rico are called los PNPs, who are pro-statehood, and you have los populares, who are pro-maintaining the commonwealth status. Those are abbreviated the PMP and the PPD, right? And it's interesting because I think a lot of people outside Puerto Rico want to look at Puerto Rico and be like, okay, Republicans and Democrats, right? And that's not really how it works. Um, Rosillo, for example, is part of the PNP. He leans centrist and can sometimes go a little far right, but then you have someone like Jennifer Gonzalez, who's also part of his party. She is the non-voting representative for Puerto Rico in Congress, and she literally wrote to Trump right after the protest started, and she was like, hey, now would be a good moment to impose more federal oversight over the aid you're sending to Puerto Rico. We need it, right? So she is fully, like, not just uh, siding and caucusing with Republicans when need be. Like, she's fully Team Trump. She yeah. was Trump's biggest cheerleader when he was on the island. Oof. And so you have, like... Just throwing paper towels together. right? Yeah. Like, like, Cheers! She, she was fully there for the paper towels. I yeah. loved it, right? So, like, even within that part, you have this difference where you did see Rosselló push back against Trump a couple of times, but not very heavily because the majority of his party wants to push statehood as a solution, right? Yeah. I think... A lot of Puerto Ricans on the island um, feel like statehood is being coerced. Um, I think a lot of the vulture funds and consulting companies that are profiting off of Puerto Rico's despair right now are also trying to push statehood mm -hmm. um, because to them that's you know the easiest way to bring Puerto Rico into the fold, um, and it's just it kind of like helps put a nice little bow on this process of colonization, right? Like we fully decimated your economy. Um, we're trying to close your schools. We don't want you to have a future. Let's also just erase your identity and yeah. your sense of culture, right? And just complete that process. And so when you look at the last referendum that was held literally like right after Maria, it was in 2017. It might have been right before. Um, late in 2017, there was another referendum. It was after because um, I think a lot of people were criticizing that it cost millions to like... Uh, set the vote up and print the ballots for this referendum and there was only a 25% turnout for context Puerto Rican voter turnout is in the high 70s to low 80s percentage wise right Ugh. it's pretty clear that a lot of Puerto Ricans just abstained from voting there yeah. were a lot of like organized protests that were like we're not voting on this this referendum is a joke we voted on so many referendums over the decades and the US Congress is going to do whatever the fuck they want Puerto Rico has voted for independence and they've ignored it Puerto Rico has voted to become a state and they've ignored it like Honestly, it doesn't matter <laughs> the way yeah. the referendum turns out at this point. And I think Puerto Ricans are fucking tired of a referendum. I think what Puerto Ricans want or are seeing as possible is um, either a new sort of mutually beneficial relationship with the U.S. Um, their current commonwealth status was negotiated. It was invented, right? It didn't exist before the 1950s. So why isn't something else possible? Why isn't something else uh, that is more beneficial for the people of Puerto Rico possible? And you're also seeing a rise in the popularity of the Independence Party, which right now maybe only counts for like 3% of the popular vote. Mm -hmm. um, but I think they've been gaining more traction because you've seen a lot of Puerto Ricans be like, okay, maybe we can't gain independence tomorrow, but how over the next 10, 15, 20 years can we set a path for independence? And I think the biggest impediment to that is that Puerto Ricans think they will be in worse 
uh, economic conditions mm. if independence happens or happens abruptly. Um, and again, I think it goes back to what Francis Negron said. It's, it's a lack yeah. of imagination, right? It's a lack of being able to envision what uh, a thriving Puerto Rican economy could look like without the control of the United States. Um, and, you know, obviously, I think if there were a transition to independence, it would require a full restructuring of what that relationship looks like. And it's not going to happen overnight. But um, I think Puerto Ricans are daring to imagine something new and something different, which is really exciting. And I do want to I do want to like revisit this idea of like why, because I've seen it happen so often, right? Like, especially online, people are like, OK, take note. This is how you do a protest. Why can't we do this over here? Yeah. A few things about that. One, there are many organizations and yes. groups, um, be they, you know, centralized like um, partisan organizations or uh, communities that have been rising up. Um, the thing is, I think there's a level of, of comfort on the mainland in the States that is different than Puerto Rico, because I think in Puerto Rico, you saw even affluent communities coming out against Rosselló um, because that desperation and that corruption was just laid bare. Like mm-hmm. there's not a corner of Puerto Rico that has not been impacted by the economic crisis that was not impacted by Maria. There's not a single person living on that Island who wasn't impacted by a death or an injury or the loss of something or someone dear to them after the hurricane. And I think Puerto Rico has just uh, reached a level of desperation that they are fed up. Even communities that were, you know, solidly pro Rosellos party came out to protest against him, right? And so it's like as terrible as it sounds, they were just fed up, right? And I don't think we've reached um, that same level of like uh, nothing left I, to lose, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, truly, you talk to young people in Puerto Rico, and they're like, "We just have nothing left to lose, yeah. right? We see, we're seeing our schools close, we're seeing our economic uh, opportunities disappear. There is nothing left for us. This is our only recourse." And I think. Um, there's a case to be made for the parallels between the economic inequality that are happening there and happening here. But I think there are enough people who haven't felt that impact here yet that if we wanted to see this groundswell, right, this grassroots effort, um, I think we need to make the case to those people who are comfortable um, that they're next. Yeah. Um, and that's the same thing we saw happening in Puerto Rico in the early 2000s. I think, you know. Right before Promesa, even right after Promesa, I think a lot of pro-statehood people were like, oh, you know, we can become a state and fix this. Or a lot of like wealthier Puerto Ricans who could afford to leave the island and, and live elsewhere, study elsewhere. were like, you know, we'll get past this. Like, it'll be fine. Um, but I think those chats just showed the lack of care for the Puerto Rican community and how deeply embedded that corruption was. And it's just like all bets are off after that. Yeah. And I, when I was reading some of the chats, it's it's not even just a lack of care. It's like an open disdain Absolutely. Um, for the people that you're governing. Yeah. And that is just, it's just so jarring to see, you know, a lot of times we think we have like a, a suspicion that our politicians are maybe like this, but to see it laid bare in that way was so striking. Yeah. And I think that's why you saw a lot of, um, women-led protest efforts. Mm-hmm. You saw a lot of queer people present. Um, Perreo, which is this dance style unique to Puerto Rico and the Caribbean that kind of came out of reggaeton and black Puerto Rican communities. Like um, Perreo and reggaeton are like a dance style and a music style that literally came from like poor black communities in Puerto Rico, right? Mm-hmm. And like now you see reggaeton being sung by like Justin Bieber <laughs> and like Rosalia, who's a Spaniard, and perreo has become this hot new thing over here. But it's like perreo isn't just like bumping and grinding, you know what I mean? Like perreo is just like such a unique style of dance. And it was wild to see uh, what I think a lot of protesters are calling perreo combativo, combative uh, perreo. Oh, yeah. Being very present at these protests. And it was wild because it's like, it just sort of embodies this like this frustration, but also this like joy and like letting loose and coming out and being like, yeah, we're fucking here. And like, this isn't all going to be sad. Like we're a very musical people. Yeah. You know what I mean? So like, that's why you saw Parranas happening, which are this sort of like, you know, these like very like musical rowdy, like <laughs> gatherings and like, uh, it's great. Like just like the, the musicality and the, the sort of the way, um, expressions of, Creativity and frustration through art are also so deeply tied to the economic inequality and the social inequality of these yeah. communities. Um, it was just really great to see that. And um, there's actually a news reporter who went viral because he was reporting about Perreo 
Um, and so he just had this hilarious quote where he was like, the intense perreo has started in front of the Capitol. I'm like, that went viral. And then someone did like a remix, like a dumb remix of his. It was great, right? Oh, wasn't, yeah. And also, wasn't there a like a Roseo diss track? There was fully a Roseo diss track. I think, I'm pretty sure it was Residente, Bad Bunny, and a couple of other artists came together. It was literally out like within three days of the chats. It was great. It was wild. That is the kind of efficiency that we need. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the thing. It's like I know these efforts are, are grassroots and and it's we should obviously credit people on the ground um, for like what started this. But a lot of Puerto Ricans on the island were also saying that like seeing celebrities like Bad Bunny, like Residente, like Ricky Martin be present at these protests, mm-hmm. not just like give a speech in peace, but like be on the ground in the middle of those crowds getting gas. Like a lot of people on the island were like, this actually makes me feel safer. Right. Yeah. Because I'm just someone. Right. If I'm right. gassed, if I'm arrested, my family will know. My friends might know, but I don't have the platform to speak out against that. And so I think a lot of Puerto Ricans were oddly kind of grateful because I feel like these celebrities showed up, didn't co-opt the message, let Puerto Ricans living on the island and Puerto Ricans suffering through this uh, inequality and injustice the most lead the conversation, Mm -hmm. but were present to help um, signal boost the messages coming out of the island. And I think when you have someone so visible, like fucking Ricky Martin at the head of a protest with a fucking rainbow flag, you know what I'm saying? I'm like, you can't, you know what I mean? You can't shoot rubber bullets at Ricky Martin. Like, you can't do that. And so it's, yeah, it was nice to kind of see that happened very um, naturally and in a way that didn't overpower um, the voice of average everyday Puerto Ricans. How have you felt uh, about this as a stateside Puerto Rican? Yeah. um, So I think there's a delicate balance here, right? Because I think um, Puerto Ricans living on the mainland, Puerto Ricans who identify as part of the diaspora are, I think, an important link sometimes when events like this are happening. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the first reporters I saw reporting from Puerto Rico um, in Spanish and English uh, was a reporter named Natalia Rodriguez Medina and she was actually working uh, I'm pretty sure she's still in J school but she was working for this outlet called Latino Rebels and the advantage of having a Puerto Rican who identifies as part of the diaspora who was bilingual on the ground with family on the island and connections to the island was invaluable because yeah. she was the first one of the first people I saw um, reporting that my friends could suddenly access my friends who didn't speak Spanish be like, oh, this is here's an English translation of the governor's statement or here's a thread on Twitter in English breaking down what's happening. And mm-hmm. I think in the early days, having people, particularly reporters or people with a platform who are in the States kind of signal boosting what's coming out of Puerto Rico is really important because I think it's easy for reporters from a national outlet to overlook a uh, local um, report from the Center for Investigative Journalism or from WAPA TV or Noticero, you know what I mean? Like any of these local organizations. And it's also fucked up because in those early days, Rosselló was denying interviews to mm-hmm. local news outlets. And one of the first interviews he gave after like eight or nine days of protest was to Fox News. And he really thought Shepard Smith was going to like softball him. <laughs> oh my and God. Like, <laughs> Shepard Smith put on his bitchiest face. And just, like, took him. I was like, you even got dragged on Fox, honey. Like your time is done. Um, and so that's the thing you know i think it's important for us to stay in our lane because we're not Mm -hmm. living it every day and i think that's something i have to remind myself of often i am a white puerto rican whose family ended up like when my mom moved to the states um her father was in the air force had alzheimer's it wasn't really diagnosed as alzheimer's he was discharged without getting his military pension. So my grandma came to Florida from Puerto Rico with like five kids as essentially a single parent um, to find uh, a viable treatment for my grandfather who had Alzheimer's at a, a point in time where not a lot of people knew what it was or what was going on. They fully lived on food stamps while they were here. You know what I mean? It wasn't this like beautiful journey of just like moving to the States where there's more opportunity. It was a matter of desperation, right? Um, but that leap and that... Um, shift in my mother's life allowed me to grow up in more relative comfort than she did, right? So I understand my economic privilege, uh, my racial privilege, uh, and the fact that I, you know, I have the option to live somewhere besides Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. And so I think when I'm weighing in on these stories and I'm thinking about what's going on, my priority is always to speak to people on the island and prioritize those voices because they're the ones that get ignored when these stories start breaking. And I think they're the ones that are most important to listen to. Early on in the protests, you saw people saying this is about more than inappropriate things on a chat, right? And the first couple of days this was being covered in the like stateside news cycle, it was like, 
Puerto Ricans are protesting inappropriate language by the governor yeah. on these chats. And then Puerto Ricans started being like, mm, that's not it. Yeah. And it took that connection between Puerto Ricans on the island and the diaspora and those working in journalism on and off the island to sort of like reset this narrative, right? And not let this like white dominated media that only cares about Puerto Rico when something disastrous is happening kind of like set the narrative. And I think something that's happening right now, I, I do want to talk about that has just started bubbling up while these protests have been happening has been the development of these opportunity zones, um, which is basically what uh, the federal government uses to pinpoint zones in poverty for de development, right? That word is very vague. Uh, and it's not good It's usually. not good, right? So Puerto Rico has like a 45 <laughs> to 50% poverty rate, which is almost double any state. Yeah. Um, but on top of that, Taking a look at the economic inequality and poverty that has been happening in Puerto Rico, um, Rosello's uh, government and La Junta have been pushing to designate up to 95% of Puerto Rico as an opportunity zone, which means that the government is going to start developing incentives for companies to come in there and develop, right? And on, on the surface, it's like, oh, well, you know, we want the most rural and uh, disenfranchised communities to have the opportunity for economic development. But like, if we look at the way that's traditionally happened in Puerto Rico, you're seeing communities get displaced. You're seeing people get priced out. You're seeing companies come in, take advantage of tax incentives, and then like none of that comes back to the people. Yeah, how's right? that how's that working out for Detroit? Right, truly, truly, truly. Yeah, um, yeah. Like the the downtown of Detroit is totally quote revitalized, mm -hmm. but no one who was there when the crisis happened pretty much is has benefited from that. I think the schools thing is like the most fucking frustrating, right? Because you're seeing these austerity measures imposed after the economic collapse in Puerto Rico, especially after the hurricane. And it's always the most underserved rural communities that are impacted first, right? Kids that are now going to have to go three hours to school when their parents like maybe only own one car and have to go to work because the school closest to them was shut down because the federal board and the secretary of education who was paying millions to businesses and people that she knew didn't think it was worth it for yeah. the government to pay for that, right? Um, and so it's just so many things i could talk about all these things it's just like every fucking aspect of this yeah to be clear so rosario resigned last friday at 5 p.m as of like four something no one in puerto rico knew who was going to take over and the guy who ended up taking over was pedro pierluisi who used to work as puerto rico's commissioner representing puerto rico in congress before jennifer gonzalez um who has profited heavily from companies coming onto the island um whose own family has ties to the fiscal board um who has been investigated for possible corruption himself or maybe soon it's like his connections to the fiscal board and puerto rico's elite are heavy and there's also this great um uh, sort of like queer activist um, called uh, Pedro Julio Serrano on the island, who's also been kind of documenting Pierluisi's homophobia um, and his efforts to kind of increase um, anti-LGBTQ sentiment on the wow. island. And so like that's just a whole new wave of, of shit we're going to have to deal with with this guy. Assuming he stays in office, right? Because it we're in this weird yeah. um, uh, constitutional gray zone in Puerto Rico right now where um, he was appointed Secretary of State right before Rosselló resigned so he could be next in line. He was confirmed by House votes, but not by the Senate. The president of the Senate, um, Rivera Schatz, who kind of wanted to become governor himself and made Rosselló stay in office longer to try to negotiate becoming governor, is against Pierluisi, right? <laughs> but not because of like ethical reasons, because he wanted the governorship. Yeah. So the Senate is like, we should have voted on this. He's not a legitimate governor until we voted on this. The governor is like, well, the Constitution says that when the Senate isn't in a regular session, we don't need the approval. So he's the governor. So like, people don't even know how long Pierluisi is going to be the governor if constitutionally he's allowed <laughs> to be the governor. Like, nobody knows what, what's going on. Like, it is truly a mess. And this is what happens when a colony cobbles together a fucking Constitution. Yeah. That the United States limits in the 1950s, thinking they can sustain that into the 21st century, like not sustainable, my <laughs> friends. Not gonna, not gonna work in the long run. Well, it sounds like there's going to continue to be uh, developments with this story for a long time, oh, and yeah. I don't necessarily mean 
developments in the way in the Andrew Yang sense. In the Andrew Yang sense, um, I am not a Bitcoin bro, um, but we would really love to have you back on. We have to wrap up now, unfortunately, yeah, because we are out of time. But like, this has been a fantastic conversation. I'm like off. I'm no, sorry, we but. we loved it. We really want you to come back on the podcast, and um, we could talk to you for three hours about Puerto Rico. Um, so great. This was yeah. the best. Okay, can you tell our listeners where they can find you and your work? Yeah, sure. Um, so you can find me online. Um, my handle on almost everything is Gaybones, G-A-Y-B-O-N-E-Z. It was a college nickname I never <laughs> thought I'd have to share with the world, and yet Twitter is here and a real thing. Um, you can find me weekdays at 8 p.m. Eastern time hosting a quiz show called Hosting on the Scruff app, which is a hookup app, but we're also show... Um, that has quiz questions about queer history and culture throughout the years. And you can win some money playing it, which is cute. Um, and uh, you can also find me as a co-host for MTV's Need to Know, um, which is a series on Twitter. Um, so yeah, reach out to me online if you have any more questions about Puerto Rico. I'm happy to answer. Yeah. I'm happy to send you all to, to more voices and journalists who are doing great work. Um, I There's so many We can put some in the yeah. episode notes. I actually would love that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But a big shout out to like primarily the women journalists in Puerto Rico and off the island because I, I think so many of them have been guiding the conversation and doing it right. So Hell yeah. yeah. Thank you so much, Gabe. You're Thanks, the best. Gabe. Thank you. Thanks it's for having rocked. me. Thank you so much for listening to Reply Guys. The show is hosted by Kate Willett and me, Julia Clare. Our producer is Genevieve Garrity. Our theme song was performed by Emily Fremgen, who wrote the song with Kate Willett. Our artwork is by Adrian Lobel. If you want to find us on Twitter, we're at Kate Willett with two L's and two T's. And I'm at OJuliaTweets, which is O-H Julia Tweets. And Twitter is where you can also find our Reply Guys. They are always with us. Bernie? Take us out. As I went walking that ribbon of highway, I saw above me that endless skyway. I saw below me that golden valley. This land was made for you and me. This land is yours.